welcome to Future Focused, Sophisticated Estate Planning with Wigan and Dana, the show where CPAs, insurance professionals, investment brokers, trust companies, CFPs, and more can firm up on their understanding of estate planning strategies so they can better guide their clients to make wise decisions with their legacy. Future Focus is hosted by Aaron Nichols and Michael Clear, partners of the Private Client Services Department at Wigan and Dana. Subscribe to Future Focused Sophisticated Estate Planning on your favorite podcast platform and share episodes with your clients. And now, here are your hosts, Aaron and Michael. This is Michael Clear, and welcome to Future Focused. I'm joined today by my partner and co-host, Aaron Nichols. And today we're going to talk about jurisdiction selection as we do some of our advanced planning strategies. Yeah, and so there are a lot of considerations when choosing where to establish a trust. And I think first and foremost, what people tend to think about is the rule against perpetuities. So how long a trust can last. Absolutely. A wrap for the lawyers out there will remember law school and, you know, 21 years of a life and being at the time that we actually make a gift to an irrevocable trust. Luckily, many states have made that easier for us to determine how long, in fact, a trust can last. And it's certainly a factor in selecting what jurisdiction that you may go to. We can look at a state like Delaware, which has no rule against perpetuity, so a trust can last forever. You can look at a state like Connecticut, where our rule against perpetuities is 800 years under the Uniform Trust Code. So we have those kind of variety in how long that they can last. Yeah, absolutely. So especially for the ultra high net worth clients who expect a trust to last for generations, it's key to have an eye toward, you know, really the length of time. Because if you're in a jurisdiction that has that traditional common law rule against perpetuities, you don't expect the trust to last for more than about 90 years. And so if a a trust is going to have principle that could last for many generations, you're not going to favor that type of jurisdiction. So certainly, I think Delaware might have been the first in the mid-80s to get rid of the rule against perpetuities altogether. And states have followed suit in meaningful ways either by similarly getting rid of the rule against perpetuities like New Hampshire or doing something like Connecticut where, you know, 800 years might as well be forever, right? We don't really think far beyond that. So it seems like a a complementary option. Right. And I think what you also have to look at there is so we're, we're making choices. So this is in the context of making a large gift, Right. So the rule against perpetuities in the gift situation starts to run at the time of the gift. Sometimes clients may think like they've created a gift, they created a trust, maybe even in Connecticut prior to 2020, when our rule against perpetuities was significantly shorter. Right. It was 21 years after the death of a life and being. So adding property to that trust now, depending on how the trust was drafted with its rule against perpetuities may not be the best idea, but also moving that trust to a jurisdiction that has a longer rule against perpetuities doesn't work either. No. And I think that that probably is something that is often overlooked, 
especially in the context of trusts that we expect to feed in to dynastic trusts. So, for example, grantor retained annuity trusts, which I think we've talked about on the podcast before. You know, if you set up a grat with the remainder going to a Delaware trust, it doesn't get you that perpetual existence if the grat is situst in a jurisdiction that has a different rule against perpetuities because it's when the trust property was irrevocable. At the time the grat was created. So kind of making sure you have that alignment when you're pouring from one trust into another in that situation. Okay. So that's one of our factors when we're going to go and pick a jurisdiction. Another one I think is often trustees and trustee roles, right? Let's talk about that. Yeah. So, you know, as a refresher, trustees have three core responsibilities. So investment, distributions, and general administration, such as preparation of of tax returns. So there are certain jurisdictions that allow for the bifurcation of that role. Yes. So in a state like Connecticut, we have the Uniform Trust Code, which allows what we call trust directors. And a trust can be drafted in a way that you can have an individual serving in a directed capacity, and we can create someone, a trust director for investments or a trust committee for investments that direct the trustee on the investments. We can do that same strategy on the distribution side. So we can have trust directors for distributions. So you have somebody else or a group of people who direct the trustee in that manner. Prior to that, historically, we would end up on the East Coast, a state like New Hampshire or Delaware for similar directed strategies. Right. I think there are two major draws for directed trusts. One related to that jurisdiction selection. So if you're driven, for example, by a rule against perpetuities such that you want to be in Delaware, you need a nexus to establish Delaware situs, but you don't necessarily want a Delaware trustee to have the role of a full trustee. So it's very beneficial to be able to limit that state nexus trustee to just an administrative role. So that's a very common reason that people use directed trusts. I think the other one relates to investment decisions. Absolutely. You'll have somebody who wants to maintain that investment decision-making process or put it into an entity or with an organization that they're more comfortable with than maybe the trust company that they selected to go ahead and get CITUS. Sometimes you may see it, you know, in a family-owned business situation where you're trying to create a core group or a core group of people who can drive that decision-making and the give somebody else distribution authority and administrative authority. So I think you're absolutely right, though. You often will see it when people were searching for a new jurisdiction for some piece, like the rule against perpetuities. And we use that bifurcation to get the right group of trustees with the right nexus to the state. Right. So in a lot of circumstances, it's a great solution for clients and will really drive a jurisdictional choice. Another one that comes up frequently is income tax considerations. Because you have to go ahead and take a look at the income tax impact of where you're creating your trust. 
from the grantor's perspective, you have to see what are the rules where you live. We need to see what are the income tax rules in the state that you're creating the trust. You may need to look where the beneficiaries live. You may need to look where the trustees live. So the income taxation of trust is very complicated. When we look at it from the Connecticut perspective, any Connecticut resident who creates a trust has created a Connecticut resident trust forever. So if we've created a trust in South Dakota with a South Dakota trustee, it's still a Connecticut trust for income tax purposes. And I think it's important as we look at more complex strategies to just kind of acknowledge that and to make sure that we're aware of that and the overall strategy still works. Yeah, absolutely. And unfortunately, it's an incredibly complicated issue, as we've seen in recent Supreme Court cases even, because every jurisdiction has a different rule and the implications of the rule are different depending on the circumstance. So it's certainly important to have a careful eye toward that, but to work with an advisor who can help you navigate through. Along the income tax side of it, sometimes we also look at a lot of our planning involving large gifts involves grantor trusts. And some states can have more flexible income tax reimbursement clauses than other states. So selecting a state, if an income tax reimbursement provision may be important to you in the planning, that may come on the scale for what jurisdiction you wanna select. Right. Yeah. So as a refresher to one of our prior episodes, right, we have grantor trusts where the grantor of the trust is treated as the owner of the property for income tax purposes, which by and large is a huge benefit. You know, it feels like you're making a gift to a trust, but it's not counted as a gift and the assets in the trust grow free of the drag of income tax. But certainly a downside can be the income tax liability, especially in years where the liability is especially large and we need an out. So the sale of a closely held business would be a good example where there's a large capital gain recognition. And so to be in a jurisdiction that permits a trust to reimburse the grantor for that liability is is really a huge benefit because the alternative in such a circumstance is likely only turning off grantor trust status, which is not desirable for a lot of reasons. One of the next strategies that we look at, sometimes on the drafting side, but sometimes on the removing trusts side, maybe from one jurisdiction to another, is decanting. We've done an episode talking about decanting and trust modifications, but different states, some states, as we discussed, have decanting statutes, some states don't, some have different standards. So decanting can be another strategy or idea that comes into consideration when we're selecting that jurisdiction. Absolutely. And that's not always a foremost consideration when creating a trust, but certainly all things considered, if you're living in a jurisdiction that doesn't have the best trust laws, so you're already looking toward alternative states like Delaware, New Hampshire, South Dakota, uh, that's certainly something to consider, you know, what outs you have. Similar to the sort of statutory help that you have in trust administration. You also might want to consider the case law 
surrounding trusts or really the sophistication of courts in a jurisdiction to deal with certain issues. And certainly the Delaware Chancery Court is known for being sophisticated in that sense. So that can certainly be preferable for some people. Yeah, and I think that's a great point is we're seeing more and more states try to be trust friendly, right? So some states will pick on Connecticut, right? So we've had the Uniform Trust Code that came into effect here in 2020, but very limited case law surrounding those new rules. So if some of those things are very important to you, if it's the bifurcation, if it's an income tax reimbursement, if it's asset protection planning, you may want to be in a state that has the court system developed that has the case law already there or a special court system to actually deal with these trust type cases. Absolutely. Are there any other considerations that you're advising your clients on when setting up irrevocable trusts? So quickly hitting one, I think, is the idea of a family wanting to consider a private trust company, whether it be a regulated private trust company or a non-regulated private trust company. And there's states mostly west of us that permit some of that interesting, flexible planning. And I think that comes into consideration, whether you're going to do that sort of an entity, you can have special purpose entities that you can wrap some of your fiduciaries in or your protectors and powers, which can lead to interesting governance structures. So if that's the type of planning you're going to do, you're certainly going to look at a state that has a developed system for that. And then I think what we're seeing more and more of is the asset protection and self-settled asset protection trusts, right? So the ability to, from an asset protection standpoint, create a trust where you're a beneficiary, but give up control on distributions to an independent trustee to protect you from claims of a creditor. It's clearly a reason to go to a different jurisdiction. Absolutely. I know you've set up at least a couple of self-settled asset protection trusts. Is that something that your clients are looking for? Do they know it's a possibility or is it something that you're advising on when deciding on jurisdictions? There are times when it's very practical and apparent, right? There are times when we use it more as a a strategy to convince someone to do their planning, right? In a classic asset protection trust, somebody's going to carve off a piece of their net worth that they have no plans on using to simply park somewhere else is certainly one strategy. But then maybe using a, you know, a self-settled trust in some of our other transactions, like a grat to pour into a completed gift trust is another, right? I think when you're looking at the asset protection side of it, though, Connecticut in 2020 became a state that would permit a grantor to create a trust for their own benefit, which would be protected. I think it's about 20 states or so now that permit that. So, but our trust law hasn't caught up to that yet. But simply the fact that we are now in a state that permits it makes it a more viable strategy for a Connecticut resident to use, right? So they may still choose to go to Delaware or South Dakota or Nevada, but the fact that we are an asset protection state now gives more credibility to the planning strategy. Absolutely. I think we hit on a number of really important jurisdictional issues. And certainly these are all things that we're considering when talking to clients, even if this isn't you know, something they've thought all the way through or even know to ask about. So it's important to be proactive when we're counseling people on the setup of a trust. Yeah. So just kind of 
looking at it in summary, kind of some of those basic factors that we're going to talk about and compare in helping us pick which one. So the rule against perpetuities, how long a trust can last, what sort of bifurcation of trustee duties we can have, what are the income tax impact of where we create the trust, it's kind of the underlying rules in the state relating to decanting or other trust modification terms. You know, do they permit the creation of special purpose vehicles or private trust companies? And then to what extent does the asset protection planning come into play? Really seem like those areas of concern. And when we do that, depending on our clients' goals and their ideas and their objectives, you may end up in a different state each time. Absolutely. Certainly is a different analysis with each client, but I think that that was a perfect summation of sort of the primary considerations that we have here. Great. Well, thanks a lot, Aaron. Enjoyed talking to you today. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Future Focused, Sophisticated Estate Planning, hosted by Aaron Nichols and Michael Clear, partners of the Private Client Services Department at Wigan and Dana. At Wigan and Dana, our aim is preserving the wealth that a family has worked so hard to create and pride ourselves in offering value-driven solutions and results. Subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform, share episodes with your clients, and follow our highly talented, creative, and experienced lawyers on LinkedIn for even more great insight. We'll see you next time on Future Focused, Sophisticated Estate Planning.